0: All right. Well, we are living in some interesting times, are we not? I mean, everybody knows it. The the interesting thing is that it's not just those who have the pulse on biblical prophecy, but it is the world in general is saying, "What happened? Where's the world that I knew six months ago, and what's changed so much?" A few years ago, I did a interview on the History Channel, and they brought together some uh, alleged uh, experts. Uh, I was one of the alleged ones, but uh, alleged experts on the subject of the end of the world. So there was a physicist from UCLA, there was myself, there were a few other different people in quantum physics and different things, and they are all kind of in the part of this interview. And it was three hours long, and basically in that three hours, they asked me questions, and I unpacked the book of Revelation from really the first chapter to the last chapter. Then the producer Shut off the camera, the crew walked out, and he said, I've got to ask you one more question. What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that scares you? I wasn't prepared for the question, but immediately the words came out of my mouth, and I said lawlessness. I said, when lawlessness becomes mainstream, that's the thing that I fear the most. You see, we have a strategy here in America. It is when the urban area gets a little bit too tough to live in, we create a suburban area. And in that suburban area, we create greater security by putting up gates and by putting up bars and by putting up alarms. Because ultimately, we always really want to keep ourselves and our families safe, and that's the way it should be. However, what if lawlessness on the rise stop safety in those safe areas. See, nobody's too concerned about bad stuff, at least not concerned enough to get involved and change it, if it's not touching their life. We have a large population of uh, law enforcement uh, personnel here that are part of our fellowship, and we thank God for them. We pray for them. Uh, We love them, and and, uh, amen. Amen. Put your hands together. And I was in dialogue with a couple of them, and I, I, we were talking about this, uh, one of them a captain, one of them chief police. And we were talking about this very subject of lawlessness and how it affects us, and do you see it on the rise, and how things are changing. And of course, you don't have to spend too long on, on the news, uh, whether you're online or whether you're on television, to know that there is a lawlessness that is on the increase in our world. So, um, back to the story of the History Channel, I was... About three weeks ago, I got a phone call from a book agent, and this book agent asked me if I would be willing to uh, propose some subject matter on either uh, the end of the world or on spiritual warfare, and it's a really interesting question because she said it's not for the Christian market per se. It's for the general market, and I said, so explain what you mean by that. I mean it's for Walmart. That's what I'm trying to tell you. They are the largest distributor of books in the world. A lot of people don't know that. The number one genre that they sell books for, they sell 100,000 units, just like off the shelf like this is spiritual warfare. Now think about that. So I put together five different ideas that I thought were fairly decent ideas and could kind of address some of the issues that she was talking about. And she loved... uh, two or three of them and then she said would you fine tune these and if you have any others because what I want to do is I want to connect you with a publisher so but but before I'm going to connect you with a publisher I want you to sign uh, a contract with me for me to be your book agent because I don't want to obviously bypass the system and you go sell this book so anyway, after looking over the contract, after kind of praying about it, I really felt really good about this agent and signed the contract. And they put me in connection. We got on the phone with um, a publisher. It's one of the top four publishers, largest publishers in the world. And I had five ideas, uh, all of which I thought were stellar. She ignored four of them. Didn't even talk about a couple of them. Didn't even want me to say, well, you know, that's a pretty cool idea. Nope, I don't want to hear about that at all. So anyway, as we began to talk, she said, this one here is the one that I want a proposal from you as soon as you can get it to me. I want the book out as soon as we can get it out. And the title of the book was The Mystery of Lawlessness. So I ask you to pray that God labels this book to be written, this book to be published, and this book to make a difference in the world. Amen. Would you join me in that kind of a prayer? Amen. Thank you. We are a nation that has been blessed by God. No one would deny that. Nevertheless, we have turned away from God. We have removed Him from our lives, and we have forbidden Him from our schools. We pray, if we must, And when we do, it is for those things that we want and rarely for those things that we truly, truly need. We have exchanged holiness for sensuality, generosity for materialism, kindness for violence. We take pride in being tolerant, and we vilify those who stand on the word of the living God. The prophets of God were never a popular crowd. Persecuted... Mocked and scorned for their unwillingness to bow the knee to false gods, to idols, or to Baal. Leonard Ravenhill, that prophet from England many years ago, wrote these words. The prophet in his day is fully accepted by God and rejected by men. The prophet comes to set up that which is upset. His work is to call in line those who are out of line. He is friendless while he is living but famous when he is dead. In a day of faceless politicians and voiceless preachers, there is not a more urgent national need than we have than for a cry of a prophet of God to come on the scene. Bill Johnson wrote in his book, we live in an unprecedented hour where people are hungering for and stepping into their destiny in great numbers, fulfilling the purpose of God for mankind on the earth. That purpose is to glorify God and to extend his kingdom. God has given to you and given to me a partnership in the kingdom of God, whereby his spirit and his word guides us and fills us and empowers us, but we are to take it and do something with it. Not to step back in idleness, not to be content because our world is not disrupted, but rather to be a strong voice, a mighty beacon of light, if you will, in a world that so needs, so desperately needs. The only hope for the world is the church of Jesus Christ. There is not hope to be found anywhere else. There is no guidance that can be found in any book apart from the Word of God that ultimately will lead man to his eternal destiny, fulfillment, and power to walk in the Spirit of God and give him a peace that passes understanding even in the midst of the worst turmoil this world can bring against us. Amen? The prophet Haggai wrote in the second chapter these words. He wrote, According to the Word that I covenanted with you, when you came out of Egypt, he said to Israel, I had a covenant with you. I made an agreement with you. We had something going there. And I'm going to keep my end of the covenant. He says, so my spirit remains among you. And then he speaks these words, do not fear. I want you to keep that in mind as you go through life today and the rest of your life. Do not fear. The God who is with you today will be with you tomorrow. The God who loves you will love you tomorrow just as He loves you today. God has not given us a spirit of fear that we might fall back into, but one of love, of power, and of a sound mind. God has called us to be strong people. Do not pray for easy lives, Phillips Brooks said, but pray to be strong men, strong women in the midst of a turbulent day. The book of Haggai goes on to say this in verse 6, "'For thus says the Lord of hosts, "'Once more, in just a little while, "'I will shake heaven and earth.'" God says, I'm going to do some shaking. I'm going to shake not just the earth, I'm going to shake heaven. I'm going to disrupt the principalities and powers in heavenly places in the spiritual realm, and I'm going to shake earth with my presence." He goes on to say, and I will shake all the nations. There will not be a nation that will be untouched when I get ready to shake. When I get to change and move and respond to the way the world responds to me, get ready. But it says, and they shall come to the desire of the nations. And that's a reference to Jesus. You see, deep in your heart, deep in the heart of every man and woman is a desire to truly know God. To be blessed by God, to be led by God, to be loved by God. We all have that. All religion gets in the way. Circumstances and pride get in the way. But that is the desire of all the heart. God says, when I shake the nations, I will indeed bring them to the desire of the nations. Do you remember what life was like just a few days after 9-11? Do you remember churches were filled? It lasted maybe three to five weeks, and then people decided that, well, we can live with the tragedy. We can live with the problem. After all, my world is safe. Why would I worry about it a bit? You know, Tammy and I were, were leaving LaGuardia uh, Airport in New York on that very day, 9-11. We flew out at 8.59 and as we, as we left the airport it makes that typical route that flies you by the Twin Towers. And so you can always look out, if you are seated on the left side of the plane you can always look out and see the Twin Towers. When we looked out we noticed they were on flame, they were in fire. They, the first plane that hit we didn't know it was a plane and someone commented, look the World Trade Center is on fire. As we flew a little bit further the pilot announced that we could not uh, use the front uh, lavatory, that we'd have to use the rear lavatory. That one was out of service. And as we flew a little bit longer the pilot announced that they would be downing that plane in Detroit. They didn't say why. We didn't know why. But as we got, as our altitude began to drop, we began to come into Detroit, people began to turn on their cell phones, as we commonly do, right? Even though they say, do not do that. But they turned on their cell phones and all of a sudden you could hear cries all over the airplane of people who were shouting and screaming and crying that the World Trade Center had been hit. Because so many of their family and friends worked in downtown Manhattan or worked in the Trade Center itself. As we landed there in Detroit, it was like a ghost town. There was no one there. There was no one to greet us. There was no one at baggage. There were no taxis. There were no buses. There was nothing. It was like a scene out of Twilight Zone. It felt like the end of the world. I looked around trying to figure out how I could get to a rental car agency. And finally, I I, I convinced this man that was driving a bus, if I would give him $20, he would drop me off. Uh, Thank God for a $20 bill. He dropped me off at Hertz rental car, and I looked, and a line of people were lined up. It looked to be 100 or 200 long. There was not a single car on that parking lot. Everybody was standing there like, what's happening here? And I got a glimpse of what it would be like if the world truly was long-term in chaos. About that time, a man came walking down. He said, I'm going to Manhattan. Anyone want to ride with me? I saw that beautiful side of man of trying to say, let's work together in a crisis. We raised our hands said, we're going to Manhattan. We'd like to have that ride. We hopped in the car with two other people we didn't know, and we took that trip from Detroit to Manhattan with perfect strangers, listening to the radio the entire time, and wondering what was happening, wondering about our daughter who was uh, in a private school in in a bedroom community just outside of Manhattan. Knowing that many of her friends... Families worked in the city. She, in in the end, would lose uh, her dearest friends, uh, would lose her father as a fireman in New York City. And many other classmates would lose one or both parents in that tragedy. But it was a day that that life changed for most of us, didn't it? Our perception of what life is all about changed. Well, God tells us here, I'm going to do something and I'm going to fill my temple with the glory of Almighty God. I'm going to do something that's going to bring people back to me. You see, that's what God is all about. We grow complacent, but God never does. We lose focus, God never does. Our plans change, His never changes. He says, I will fill the temple with glory, says the Lord. And then notice what He says, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine. God reminds us something here. You think you have wealth, you have nothing. I have it all. In a moment I can take it away from you. In a moment I can redistribute it. In a moment I can cause everything in your life to shift in a totally new direction and you will understand that all silver and all gold is mine. Everything you have is His. He allows you to steward it. He allows you to spend it. And He wants you to honor Him with it. He wants you to take what you have and extend the kingdom of God. Yes, take care of yourself. Yes, take care of your family. Take care of others and be kind. But he just wants us to remember, and this is going to be a critical verse when we look ahead at what's happening and what has happened. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple. He said, you see the glory that was there in Solomon's temple when the the Spirit of God came down? I'm going to do more than that. I want you to know this right now. The glory that's in you right now of God, God says, I want to do more. I want to fill you up. I want to use you. I want to bless you. I want the glory to come in you tenfold over what it is right now. Amen? Amen. 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 And, and, And it goes on to say this. The glory of the latter shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. You know what he's talking about? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the most highly contended piece of real estate on the planet. Everybody wants a little piece of land that's smaller than New Jersey. Why? Because it is the spiritual center of the universe. It's the only city that God says is mine. It's the only land that God says is mine. That's mine. That's different. If you've ever been there, you know it's different. The moment you get off the plane, you go, there's something different about that. By the way, I finally succumbed to all of your requests. Next year we're going to take a trip to Israel. Uh, amen. We found a Jewish guide that is going to be phenomenal, so we'll tell you more about that later. Uh, but, but you see, God says, that's my land. He said, I'm going to give peace. How are you going to give peace? Politicians trying to give us Peace. Politicians say the solution is we're just going to kind of take from one, give to another, and everybody's going to be happy. Hey, Let me tell you something. There is not a man-woman on planet Earth that can bring peace to the Middle East. But there is one in Heaven and His name is Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. He will return in all of His glory. One day He will bring peace to the Middle East. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. Give Him glory. And so I want you to know here is what is happening. I want you to have a concerned hope. When you leave here today. That's my that's the emotion I want you to have. I don't want you to walk out of here depressed and thinking, oh man, the world is coming to an end. I don't want you to walk out of here and just kind of have this fluttery Southern California. I'm not worried about it because I live near the beach. I want you to have a concerned hope that activates the spirit in you, the gifts in you, and turns you into a mighty warrior for the kingdom of God. Here's the first thought I want you to have. We are on the doorstep, I believe, of a great awakening. Now, if you watch the presidential debates, you probably watch with me with a great deal of interest. There's never been one quite like it, probably because there's never been a Donald Trump on the platform. But what made it different for me was the number of times the politicians made a reference to Jesus Christ, to being born again, to salvation, or to the blood of Christ. I stood back and I thought, I remembered back of all the different politicians I would heard, all the spiels I've heard over the years, all the, all the different debates I've watched in my lifetime, and when it comes to religion, you typically hear something like this, well, you know, my Christian faith is kind of pretty private, I keep it to myself, and you know, but it's an important part of my life. And I'm sitting there thinking, that just, that just gives me a pain I can't locate. Stand up and tell me what you believe. Stand up and tell me and let me make a decision if you believe in Jesus Christ tell me you believe in Jesus Christ but don't tell me you know you try to just keep a good Christian faith. No I want to know do you love Jesus? And if you, get, if you don't get voted in because of that so be it. Well let me just give you a couple of things. I got the transcript from that presidential debate. I went through it. I highlighted a few things. And then I pulled out one tweet from one candidate. And I just want to, I'm going to put these on the screen for you. You can get a feel for them. Here's the first one from Candidate Cruz. He said, well I am blessed to receive a word from God every day in receiving the Scriptures and reading the Scriptures. And God speaks through His Bible. And you'll notice the next word up there is that's what the crowd did. They applauded. They said, yes, that's a good word. He went on to say, I am the son of a pastor and evangelist, and I've described many times how my father, when I was a child, was an alcoholic. He was not a Christian, and my father left my mother and left me when I was just three years old. Someone invited him to church. He gave his heart to Jesus, and it turned him around. He got on a plane, flew back to me and my mother. Now think about that word. He said, my father left. He was an alcoholic. He found Jesus Christ. He got saved. He came back. He became a pastor and evangelist. It changed the entire fabric of my entire family. It changed the destiny for generations to come of how they would approach life. Walker said this, well, thanks, Megan. He was, she was saying some things about complimenting him. And he said, I'm certainly an imperfect man. And it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that I've been redeemed from my sins. When was the last time you heard that? For 24 million people heard that. Now think about that. Glory be to God. 24 million people heard about the blood of Jesus Christ redeeming him from his sins. And by the way i 'm not here endorsing any candidate i don 't really know who God has in mind i 'm just excited that anybody 's talking about Jesus. Amen. Yes. He goes on to say, "So I know that God doesn 't call me to do a specific thing God hasn't given me a list of ten commandments, if you will, of things to act on on the first day And the question was, will you how will you?" Will you get your guidance, your wisdom from God as you go into office? And is that going to guide you? And she was trying to set him up and say, well, you're probably just going to be one of those Christians. Dr. Ben Carson tweeted this to his followers, may the Lord guide my words tonight. Let his wisdom be my thoughts. Amen. Amen. I love, I love it when people talk about Jesus, don't you? You know, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved in the name of of Jesus, there is no name like the name of Jesus. You swing a hammer and you hit your thumb, you rarely say Buddha, almost never do you say Muhammad. Why do you think you say Jesus? Because the enemy knows. That there's no name given among men whereby you must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. He wants to denigrate that name. He wants to bring that name down. And he wants to bring it into despair and discouragement. But I want you to know every time you say the name of Jesus and you mean it, you lift him up, I want you to know that the ministering angels dance in the aisles. Amen. Amen. And God's redeemed say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, God has a way of getting our attention. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that when you're going on your own route and you're doing your own thing, that God can get your attention and He gets your attention in ways that you don't particularly like? I mean, that God is a specialist in that, right? And the reason is, is because He's been trying to get our attention in those ways that are kind of behind the scenes, you know, like, you know, I'm trying to nudge you, nudge you, nudge you. Oh, I have to push you. Okay, I'm going to do that. Well, God has a way of getting our attention. So, what I want you to do, there's been a lot of talk about. Uh, and you may or may not be aware of this, so I'm just going to try to bring those of you up to date who have no knowledge of this, and those of you who have a lot of knowledge. Hopefully, I can maybe add something to that. But but if I can't, then just be encouraged that we're talking about this subject. In the Jewish calendar, everything is built around this idea of seven. God created uh, the earth in seven days. Seven is a number of completion for God. God wants us to take that seventh day and turn it and make it different, to remember him, to, to understand what it means to enter into the rest of God. He not only did that, but he said, I'm going to take the years and a period of seven years at the end of that, there's going to be uh, a shemitah. There's going to be a time where it's a completion of, of cycle. It's going to be a release. So in God's plan, the idea was every seven years, if you were a farmer, you would let the land rest. It would go into a Sabbath. And what that meant was you wouldn't plant crops on it, and it allowed it one year to regenerate itself, and then you'd come back and you'd do it again in another area. So you'd always keep cycling that out. The same thing would happen in seven periods of seven. So you would go seven years times seven years would be 49. The 50th year would be a jubilee. This is a jubilee year we're in in the Jewish calendar. And at that time all land uh, would go back to the original owner. All debts would be forgiven. So, for example, if you had accumulated a large debt on the year of Jubilee, it would be released. It was God's way of bringing order back into society. So someone was not good at handling their money, and, and they got a little out of debt, or maybe they had an unfortunate thing happen in their family. They got a little bit too much debt. God said everything is wiped out. Everybody in the Jewish community would understand that that was the way it was supposed to work. Okay? It doesn't work that way today. There's, we've gone away from the law of God. We've missed it. They also would say that land would go back to its original owner. You've probably heard the term of a, 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 of a landmark. Don't remove the ancient landmark the book of Proverbs talks about. And what that was was when, the land, when they went into the land, the land was given to the tribes, and the tribes would then narrow that down, and everyone would get a piece of land going into that promised land. They would use markers to designate where, those, where that land was. And so the idea was, if let's so, suppose that I had my land but I got over my head in debt. I could go to my neighbor and say, would you like to buy my land or part of my land? And he would say, of course, I'll buy it. But he would understand that in the year of Jubilee, he would have to give the land back. So he wouldn't want to buy land in the 49th year. That's the moral of the story, right? Okay. So, but what would happen sometimes is they would take that owner would become greedy and he would take that landmark and he would move it so that he would say, no, this is where your land is. And assuming the guy would forget, or maybe now it was sons and daughters who owned the land. And so there was, a, there was something in Scripture that said, don't move the ancient landmarks. And it meant this, don't try to get ahead using the wrong method. Don't try to cheat and steal in order to prosper. That was the message. And I'm going to bring everything back to a release. Now on the last day of that seven-year cycle was called the Day of Alu. And a day of Alu meant that was the culmination of that period uh, of seven, that cycle of seven. Now there's an interesting pattern of the cycle of seven we find in our world today. And we could go into a lot of depth if we had time. We could really drill down to this. But what I want to do is I want to show you a chart here. And we are going to have this up for a few minutes so I can kind of explain it to you. But in this Sumitra, this seven year cycle that we find, and we just took this back to 1966. We could take it back to the Great Depression. The cycle is still there. We could go even further back. We could show you all different things that are happening here. But let's just take it back to 1966. That was a Sumitra year. Remember, everything is in now a seven year cycle. So what happened in 1966, there was a financial crisis, the market dropped 20%. All those analysts, they looked at it, and they said, well, here's why it dropped uh, by 20%. And we wouldn't think much about it, because markets rise and they fall. If you have stock, you know that that's just part of the whole thing. However, there's an unusual pattern in the Sumitra. So if we go now to 1973, the oil shock uh, uh, upheaval market drops 30%. Another interesting thing happened in 1973 that began building the World Trade Center on a Symmetra year. It would also collapse on a Symmetra year. Same cycle, same day interesting dimension here. Okay, 1980, a hard recession begins. We'll talk about that a little bit further. 1987, stock market crash. 1994, bond market crash. 2001, we know about that because of 9-11. We can attribute that to a, to a terrorist attack. We say, of course the market would drop in that time. But isn't it interesting that the attack happened on the Sumitra year? It happened on the very month, down to almost the very day. Uh, was God trying to get our attention? 2008 stock market crash. Uh, We'll talk about that in detail. And the question is, is there a mega crash alert coming for 2015 because it's a Sumitra year. Now I realize that people say, well can't you find patterns for everything in life and can't you do this? When you start to study this in some detail you'll find it's an amazing, amazing set of of patterns that have developed and they seem to be moving in a direction of God reminding us, silver and gold is mine. Now, the success of a great city, uh, typically, is the size of its buildings. And so, if we go back into Genesis chapter 10, what do we have? We have the Tower of Babel, right? And what did God say about the Tower of Babel? They said, there's nothing that can stop us now. That was the message of, from Nimrod and his crowd in, in the book of Genesis. And yet God says, let me go down and see, see this small sight you've done. He confused the language. We began to see that. The pyramids rose up. It was a symbol of great power, great strength. Now they're, they're just really uh, kind of uh, tourist attractions. They, they really don't symbolize anything except a glorious past. Okay? If we go into uh, early America what do we find? We find uh, there's a competition between Chicago and New York who can build the biggest tower because that symbolizes the greatest strength that there is. In the ancient Asian world there was the pagoda. It was a religious um, uh, tower but it was also pointing to the greatness of their God the great and the success of that land. So what happens is that God, when the, if, if the building of a tower is a symbol of the greatness of a country what is the destruction or the neglect of a great tower? Well, Egypt is is really, is not anywhere close to the glory it used to have. And of course, the World Trade Center collapsing, it's a reminder that we don't control our destiny, that there's something different going on in our world. So let me just take you on a little bit of a journey. 2001, America changed. I think we all would admit there's something changed. We feel it inside of us. It was almost like for the first time we have been attacked now on our own land, and maybe we're not as powerful as we thought we were. But it did something else to it. It changed us spiritually. It changed us, I believe, also emotionally and maybe even mentally. Because all of a sudden we began to look at life differently. It was almost like it opened the door for lawlessness. And now we thought to ourselves, well, what do we do? How do we protect ourselves? So laws change. So we, we, we began to see we couldn't go down the concourse and we couldn't go down the, at the airport. We couldn't see things. We, we, we were restricted more on how long it took us to get through security. And every time we fly, we are reminded of 9-11. It is, it is like a byword for what happened uh, so many years ago. It was, a, it was a warning that a spirit of lawlessness had arrived. I believe it was an open door. I believe we opened the door as a people because of our neglect, because of God was giving us warnings. If I take those symmetry years, God says, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you, I warned you. Now let me just show you, can I get your attention yet? 2008. You may not remember 2008 unless you're in the financial business, but if you do, or if you happen to have some stock or some, you know, you had a retirement account, you probably wonder what happened in a day. Well, the stock market crash in 2008, it was awake. In its wake, the global investment firm Bear Stearns folded. The mortgage market collapsed. The fourth largest investment bank in America, Lehman Brothers, imploded. This was the greatest crash in stock market history. On September 29th, the opening bell would not work. That was the day the stock market would crash. They couldn't understand why does the bell not work. Was it a warning from God? Was God saying, don't open the market today. Consult with my calendar. Consult with the pattern that I've set in place. They rang the bell. And some of what we know is now history. History. I pulled out an article from the archive, New York Times, on September 29th, 2008, and I just want to read a little excerpt from you. Six and a half frantic hours later, $1.2 trillion had vanished from the United States stock market. What had started 24 hours earlier with a modest sell-off in stock markets in Asia had turned into Wall Street's blackest day since 1987. What was 87? It was a symmetry year. Here's the pattern. New York Times says, this is the worst one we've seen since what? 1987. Well, I pulled up uh, ABC News uh, August 24th, just a few weeks ago, 2015. This is what they write. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell more than 1,000 points in the early trading but recovered some of its losses during the late morning. By 3 p.m. the blue chip index was down about 600 points, or 3.6%. The Dow's largest point decline took place on September 29, 2008. So now in the 2015 article they're quoting to the 2008 article. In the 2008 article they're quoting the 1987 article, all Sumitra years. Then it went on to say this, When it lost 777 points, remember the number seven. Its largest percentage decline was on, and here it is. Listen to this: October 19th, 1987, when it lost 22.6 percent. So here's the article from 2015, citing 2008, 2000, uh, and uh, 1987 as symmetry years, and showing us without even putting the dots together because they don't know how to put the dots together, God was showing us something about the pattern He has. Let's go to 2015. September now is a new symmetry year. It also aligns with the four blood moons and a Jewish feast day. Now what makes it interesting this year uh, and a Jubilee year, what makes it really interesting is that those alignments have only happened 10 times in 2,000 years. We are living in a very, very unique moment. Now, what does it all mean? Uh, We're going to try to make some sense out of it here before we leave. But but ultimately, we're going to know a lot more in October. Amen? We're going to know a lot more. But what we want to try to do is we want to try to say there's a pattern put in in society by God for a reason. Does that really surprise us? If God, who can take exactly the right amount of oxygen, put it into the air so we can breathe, if a God who can hang stars and put planets in orbit in exactly the right way, does it really surprise us that God would order His universe by cycles of seven? If God could give us His Word, preserve His Word, and allow us to understand Him, uh, does it really surprise us that God would put order into His calendar system? You know the Bible says in the book of Genesis chapter 1 that, uh, that God made the sun and the, star- the moon and the stars also. And then he said this, they're for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Notice that word signs. In the Hebrew, that word sign there doesn't mean like a road map. It means like an alert. Have I got your attention? God said when you see changes happening, I put them there for a reason. We saw it when Christ was crucified. We saw the sun go black. We said when when Christ returns, the sun will go black. We see all kinds of patterns of those throughout Scripture, and they can all be confirmed. You can go, you know, you can take the Sumitra years, a lot of people in the four moons, and you can go on NASA's website, and you can confirm everything I'm telling you here. It lines up perfectly with all God says in His Jewish calendar. Now... Sumitra is based on seven-year cycles. That's the key you want to understand. It operates on a global and an epic scale. It doesn't just affect us. It's going to affect everyone worldwide. It involves political, cultural, and economic realms. So it touches different dimensions. We just notice it most when it touches our finances. Because, you see, God knows that the way that we approach our money has a lot to do with the way we approach God. You see, money is something I trust in because I, I can, you know, I can buy my way out of a problem. I can get a house. I can get food. And so I got I to gotta have enough of that to succeed, right? God says, I'm going to take away from you. I'm going to shift some things out of your life if I need to. Or I'm going to pour some more into your life so you understand when you cooperate with me the blessings of God. We have for the, for the last uh, probably six or seven weeks we've talked about the blessed life and, and how, to, how to get in, in touch with God's economy. And I've heard numerous reports already of people who've said, you know, I began to tithe, I began to give, and I've already began to see God bless. It's just amazing to me what God is doing. And I think what we have to understand is if God created the law, He did it for a reason. That is the law of God. He created it for a reason. He wanted us to be blessed. He wanted us to prosper. He wanted us to to, to be joyful in all different areas of life. It also, the other thing we understand about the Sumitra is uh, it, it alters the way we understand God. You see, once we begin to see a pattern, we begin to see how God works in our life, we go, wow, I have a new appreciation of God. I have a new understanding of God. If I just cooperate with God, God is going to get me through this. I don't have to fear. I don't have to worry. I don't have to feel in threat. I can, have, I can have concerned hope, amen? I can prog- make progress down that road with God. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Okay, now what's the converse of that? God doesn't move to and fro across the earth to support those whose heart is not completely his. That's the converse. I like to read Scripture in the converse. I go, what's, my, what's, the, what's the downside of this thing if I flip it? What if I don't want to do that, God? What does that mean? Now, that's, that, that helps me. You know, it hits me a little stronger that way. Amen? I mean, I just go, whoa, I don't want that. Okay, what's the purpose? The purpose of symmetry is points to God's dominion over all things. God is over all things. I remember praying with a guy who had a very very rare um, um, disease. And uh, they said it was incurable. Uh, It wouldn't kill him, but the side effects down the road would eventually do that. He was an extremely wealthy guy. He could buy himself out of anything. Anything, 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 right? But I remember praying with him. And before I prayed, I asked this question. What would you pay to be well? To be healthy? What would you pay of your great wealth? He said, I would give it all. And I said, You may have to. Because it may be the very thing that keeps you from seeing what God wants to do in your life. Now you know not all sicknesses of God. Some sickness is part of our environment. Some sickness is just part of life in general. Amen. It's just part of what, what goes on in our world. God heals some. We've seen mighty healings in our place. We've seen those who, who were not healed. Those are the ones that break my heart. What's the goal? The goal of the Sumitra is to bring about repentance. It's to bring about a change of heart. It's a, it's a takeaway that, you know, that you say, well, I'm 50% committed to God. It's to move us from 50% to 100%. It's to say, I want, I want you to really be sold out to me. Jonathan Kahn wrote this in his book. If the nation rejects the first shaking and warning of judgment, there will come another and another. Until the nation either returns to God or descends into the full end of judgment. I believe that the global crisis that we are in, and I believe it probably is going to increase, will open a door for a move of God. You see, that's what excites me. Every time my world gets rattled, I get closer to God. How about you? Every time I'm speeding and the policeman doesn't pull me over, I'm encouraged. Amen? Amen. <laughs> I drive slower the next time. I think, thank you, God, for that great reminder. The first rule of safe driving is a policeman on the corner. Amen? Okay. Now, but here's what I see. The gospel will penetrate previously closed nations. That's what I think is coming. I think we're going to see God do some things in an amazing way in places we never would have imagined. Do you realize what ISIS is doing in the Middle East? They are strengthening the faith of Christians. See, we, got, we, we, are, we are so concerned about the tragedy as we should be. But there's also another side of it. There are people that never stood up for their faith in the Middle East who are standing up for their faith. Testimonies. People send me videos all the time of three, five, ten-year-old little girls. Giving a word of testimony about Jesus, about whole villages that refused to bow their knee. And they said, kill us. We will not bow our knee. They never would have had that kind of commitment before. And what God is doing is He's taking the blood of the martyrs and He's letting it become the seed of the church. Amen. And why do you think in the book of Revelation the martyrs who have been beheaded for their faith, that's what Revelation says, why do you think they cry out, God, how long, how long until you bring justice? He says, just a little bit more. See, God's got a plan that doesn't really fit into our world very well, our understanding of our world. But God is doing something. Asia will become the world's greatest hub for Christianity. By the year 2035 there will be more Christians in China than any other place on the planet. There will be more Christians in China than non-Christians in China. And already there's more English speaking people in China than anywhere in the world including America. God has a purpose. Let me show you that purpose. I was with some Chinese friends of ours up in Vancouver not too long ago and they were talking about the underground uh, church movement. And uh, they were specifically talking about the Jerusalem initiative. And I had never heard of it in my life. They said a number of years ago, a prophet said that, that, that it was, uh, they believed it was the, the call of Chinese to go into Jerusalem, prepare the Jews before the second coming of Christ. I've never heard anything like that in my life. So 12 pastors got together. They loaded up their Jeeps. They got their passport stamped so they could travel through every, s- now they're going to drive to Jerusalem from China. Okay. That's, that's the old Silk Road. You got to go through every country that ends with the word Stan. Okay, that's really the route. Okay? They're going to they're gonna go down there. They loaded up these little jeeps full of dried noodles. They got to the border. They, the passport was good, but they didn't have a vehicle pass. They sat at the border for three weeks and ate all their dry noodles. Now they got no noodles. What do we do? They looked at each other. We believe God wants us to go. They took off across there with no food. The journey, that journey that they took all along the way, when you hear the story, they were blessed with people giving them food. They were blessed with people giving them gas. They led people to faith in Christ. It was an amazing, amazing move of God. They made it all the way to Jerusalem. They reported back to Chinese, it can be done. You say, why China? Because China is the only country on planet earth, major power that has not persecuted the Jews. Interesting, isn't it? How God works. God has a plan. By the way, we're gonna our school of ministry that starts up at the end of the month. Uh, it's it's on the subject. Uh, we're focusing in on the underground church. We're gonna have you read a book. We're gonna prepare you, and it's gonna culminate with a night of the of the underground church here, where we're going to recreate an underground church in China. You're going to have to get here on time. We're not going to let anybody in after the doors close, just like they do in China. We're going to spend three hours teaching the Word of God, and we're bringing someone in from the underground church in China to be here with us that night. Put it on your calendar. When you see it come up, I don't have the date in the top of my head, but it's in October. The, I think it's the last week, Friday of October. God's doing something. I believe a global prayer and worship movement will ignite the works of the kingdom as never before. Do you know why? You know why we worship God? You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't really like the music, I like the preaching. Or people say, I just like the worship, I don't like the preaching. Can I tell you something? The reason that worship is so important, the reason that you need to be here on time every week is because God inhabits the praises of his people. You miss out on the habitation of God. Do you know what, you know what, you know what worship does? It drives the enemy crazy. The anointing that was on David affected King Saul who was inflicted with an evil spirit. When he played his worship unto the Lord, the evil spirit departed temporarily from Saul because he couldn't stand in the presence. I believe worship will bring us a great move. I believe prayer. What would happen? What would happen if you really believed you really believed that prayer could move mountains. You see, if another 9-11 came tomorrow, our Tuesday morning prayer and worship time here would be full. Did you ever think, did you ever think that if you prayed right, you could avert a 9-11? That's an interesting thought, isn't it? You see, if we really believed in prayer, unless, unless we were working, unless our schedule prohibited and we were in school or whatever, you should be here every Tuesday at nine o'clock for an hour and a half to pray. Collectively, just imagine if there's 100 people there on Tuesday morning, 100 people, that's times an hour and a half. Do the math, how many hours of prayer is that that's going up before the throne that's affecting our world, that's changing our world? Amen. I believe a global crisis will open the doors for the presentation of the gospel. I'm so glad to have our brother uh, Alex Hanna and and Sami here. Raise your hand, guys. They. he, uh, I, I've announced him before. He just got back from a conference in New Jersey on reaching Muslims with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uh, formerly uh, served as a, a, as a medical doctor, started leading so many people to Christ, get, seeing him healed through laying on of hands that he decided it was time to go in the ministry. Now he preaches to between 20 and 30 million Muslims every week in the Middle East and Europe. Amen. Right here. God bless you, brother. Not too long ago, we had a young man. It happens all the time. young man needed to work off some time from school. I don't know really what happened, but we've all been there. Or had a son or daughter who has, right? Had to work off a little bit of time, came in here. We assigned him to our youth pastor. He was a student at a a high school. Um, And so uh, he happened to be Muslim. So one half of his work time here was to sit in the service. How's that? That's what you call Jehovah sneaky. All right? kid was loving it, having a great time. Went away to youth camp. Went to youth camp with us just a few weeks ago. Gave his heart to Jesus Christ and was baptized. I'm on the phone and all I could think of, I, my one question was that's great. What do his parents think? He said they're thrilled with it. They're thrilled with it, right? They're working through that. God's doing something. You see, when God does something, there's no stopping it. Amen. New priorities are already being formed in the hearts of those who truly love God. Your heart should be reshaped right now. Your heart is shapeable. It's malleable. It can change its shape, and it can love God. Your commitment can go up greatly. God is calling people, I believe, to a Holy Spirit-empowered commitment to stand against the storm of evil that is rising up in our land. We may be a small army like that of Gideon. Men and women who are not afraid of man or of devil. Strong in the Spirit and in the Word. Would you be one of those ones that would rise up with me? Would you be one of those end time warriors for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Would you give Him the glory? I mean put your hands together if you just believe that that's where we need to be. Adrian Gayness said this, the problem in America is that everything has become a formula, and the goal is to cater to the needs of the people. Well, I don't like that. I don't like this. Seriously. You sound like a five-year-old in the cereal aisle. What has happened to maturity? What has happened to adulthood? We've extended adolescence so long that it's now reaching 50 and 60 and 70-year-olds. They're still adolescents. They're buying buying Clearasil for their spiritual journey. They've missed out on what God really wants to do in their life. Stand up straight. Have a a spine. have Have a resolve to be a man or a woman of God. She goes on to say, in China, 50 people are sitting cross-legged on a damp cement floor sharing a single Bible. It boils down to a lack of spiritual hunger. When things are desperate, you turn to God. Awakenings in our land. Awakenings are usually preceded by a time of spiritual depression, apathy, and gross sin in which the majority of nominal Christians are hardly different from members of the secular society. An individual or a small group of people become conscious of their sin, backslidden condition, and vow to forsake all that is displeasing to God. As some Christians begin to yearn for a manifestation of God's power, a leader of leaders will arise with prophetic insights into the causes and the remedies of the problems, and a new awareness of the holy and the pure character of the Lord is present. As the prophet Hosea said in chapter 6 and verse 1, Come now, let us return unto the Lord, for He has torn, and He will heal us. He has stricken, but He will bind us up. Let me give you some life applications. Here's the first one. Return to the Lord that you might be healed. There is a brokenness in all of us. There is something that's out of sync in all of us when it comes to our commitment to Jesus. Even if you're 90% committed, God says, what about the other 10? God requires everything. He's not looking for a little. He's looking for everything. He didn't come to be Lord of some. He came to be Lord of all of your life. So don't wait. Today is a day to come back to God. Today is a day to say, I want to commit to God. I want to be one of those. I don't know what the days ahead are holding, but I know if if the past six months and two years are any indication that there's going to be greater challenges for those who name the name of Jesus than ever before. I believe that much at least is true, and I think most of you would agree with that. I want to know what are you going to do about it. I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now and bow your heads. And I'm going to ask you right now as I pray, I want you to ask God, God, would you show me one thing right now that I need to remember from this day that's going to ignite in me a a commitment to you, Jesus, that's going to empower me, Jesus, to really be what you want me to be? What is it God is saying to you right now? And then I want to ask you to do something today. I'm going to ask you to step out of your comfort zone a little bit. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment today. I'm going to ask you, those of you who put your hands together and said, I believe that God, yes, that's what God is doing. He's he's bringing people together to stand against the storm of evil that's rising in our land. I'm going to ask you, would you be willing in just a moment to step out from where you're standing or sitting, come here to the front and say, I just want I want to come here as, a, as just a commitment of my life to say, I am going to follow the Lord. I'm going to take it up a notch. I'm going to be a person of commitment. I want to be one of those end time warriors that just stands for Jesus, stands for Jesus. So right now I'm going to ask you and then we're going to pray for you and then we're going to be done. But I, I'm going to ask you, Would you step out from where you are right now? just scores you. you just come right now and just say, I want to do that. I want you to pray for me, Pastor. I want to be committed to this cause of Christ. Just come. Just come quickly. Come quickly. We're going to stand here. I'm going to pray over you. We're going to send you out. You're going to be a powerful force for the kingdom of God. Um, There's something powerful about making a commitment. You asked, do you have to do this in order to to make a commitment to Christ? No, you don't. But there's something about it that seals it. There's something about being together and standing next to brother and sister in the Lord and saying, I want to be identified with that. It's crowded up here. Don't, don't worry about it. Just, just keep filling in the slots. All of you have come here today and you've, there's something in you that said, I want to do that. God sees that, God honors that. And God's honoring you. Don't think he's not. For those of you who didn't feel led to come up here, that's fine, don't worry about that. But but for those of you who made that little extra effort this morning, I want to pray for you right now. And I want to pray that you are empowered and you're anointed for a task. Holy Spirit of God, right now, we welcome you here. God, all of these who've come here today, God, they are seeking a a special power, and anointing that comes from you. Would you anoint them right now for the task that you've given them, God? Would they feel right now the Spirit of God powerfully come upon them? Would you just, in your own words, just invite the Spirit of God just to empower you right now, to anoint you? The full force of the Spirit coming up against you right now. God is anointing you like he anointed kings of of old, priests of old. He's putting his spirit on you right now, and he's saying, thank you. I want you to be numbered. Don't ever underestimate what you can do with me. God, fill these people with your spirit, God. Anoint them, God. Let their commitment to you go up a hundredfold, God. May we be mighty warriors for the kingdom of God. May our names, God, be names that you lift up and say, there's one of my warriors There's one of my warriors. I'll send one of my angels over there. They'll accompany them. They'll empower them. They'll strengthen them in the journey. May the word of God come alive in each one of you today. May your memory be improved that you can recall the scriptures. May you walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. May you be blessed beyond measure. May you proclaim the name of Jesus in those places that desperately need it. God, seal now these decisions by your spirit, your signet ring of your strength, of your power and of your authority. Bless now, we pray, these warriors who are going to influence the world for Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen and amen. And everybody said amen. 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 Put your hands together for the king. Amen, amen. All right, guys, we've got a task to do, amen. Got something to do? Let's go get them. (laughs) Amen? All right, guys. Have a great week. We love you in the Lord.